Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Bishop's wife, Olivia, is continuing to deteriorate. And uh, some of you may not have heard that this last week she was uh, diagnosed with cancer and that uh, outside the Lord's direct healing, um, there was nothing more medically they could do. Um, She was given four to six weeks uh, to live. And uh, this was on Tuesday. I was really... um, minister to, I listen, as you know, Bishop's brother, Jimmy, passed away last Sunday as a result of COVID and complications with COVID. And so when I've, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Bishop found out about his wife, Olivia, on Tuesday, that she had four to six weeks to live. On Wednesday, he preached his brother's funeral. And India, I had some things to do, but she had it on the internet and I could overhear him uh, preaching uh, that sermon for his brother, I could hear his voice cracking, and I just felt uh, so much compassion for him. He sent the clergy a letter last night that she was deteriorating more rapidly than they thought, and it would probably only be a matter of days, even hours. Uh, occasionally she woke up and they could talk to her, and occasionally she would go unconscious. So I say that now to ask that we pray, okay, and take time to prayer. Yesterday, we, uh, they had the funeral of a friend of mine, and many of you knew Ray Baker and John, his dad. Many of you hung out. He came to um, you know, a lot of the Yobinior things, and uh, I really enjoy attending a funeral at a charismatic church because there's so much hope and joy and belief in the resurrection of the dead. And there was just a real peace there, but it also a sadness for me where we'll miss him. So this unusual time and um, for us and for our bishop on the left, there's a card back there on the left. And I needed to fill them out, but I didn't. It's for the Jones side of the family, for Roxanne, uh, Rebecca and um, Charlotte, Jimmy Jones's wife. That's for them for us just to sign, send them a note as a congregation. We've been praying for them and thinking about them. The one on the right is for Bishop and Olivia, and just the same thing that we know as a congregation, we're praying for them and lifting them up. So if you would sign those before you leave, uh, that would be great. And again, those roses are for you and a reminder of the obedience of uh, Mary today, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Who would like to pray for um, Bishop Chuck right now? Olivia, okay, and just uh, whoever, just jo- let's just join in, and you got a mic, we have a mic to float, okay, here's this one, no, walked right over it, okay, did you want to pray, is it on, it is not, there we go. God, I just thank you so much for the beauty that has been displayed by our bishop and his wife. I just thank you, Lord, for the love that they've bestowed on all of us and our weakness and in our struggles. I pray to you, Lord Jesus, that you would just 
bring encouragement to their hearts. Yes. Lord. And I pray that Bishop would know that he's surrounded by family and friends that care for him. I pray that Olivia would just be able to rest in peace. And Lord, I pray you'd bring her healing. However you want to do it, Lord, I just pray that you would bring complete healing to Olivia and that her body would be strengthened. Lord, I just ask that your power and your glory would be felt in her room and that your comfort would be theirs. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Father, we pray for her healing. We pray that, Lord, that you would provide a miracle today, that, Lord, you would restore her and make her whole, that you would heal her of this cancer, and that, Lord, you would restore her body from all the effects of polio, all the effects of pancreatitis, all the things that she struggled with so much. We pray you would grant her peace, the peace that passes all understanding. We pray for comfort for the Jones family and for the entire church family. We pray, Lord, for... Um, uh, the boys, and that, Lord, you would minister to them and encourage them this day. Lord, bring your healing power and your comforting presence, we pray, to the Jones family, to our bishop and his wife. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Amen. I just finished a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And it sounds like an atheist attack on the Christian faith, but actually it's a professor from, um, who studied at Oxford and Cambridge, and her name is Rebecca McLaughlin. And she answers the most, the 12 questions that most non-Christians ask. And she does it in a beautiful and winsome way. And I thoroughly enjoyed it recommend the book to you. But of course, the, the 12th question is always the question that always gets asked. Why does God allow us some suffering? Why is there death in the world? Why is it he doing from the skeptic? Why is he doesn't seem to be doing anything about it? It's often called the problem of evil. And we don't have the answers to all of it, but I do have the answers to one thing. He has done something about it. And he's done something about it in Jesus Christ. We may still be in a world, a fallen world. We may still be in a world where there's suffering and dying and pain. But we know that the Lord has come to fix it. He's come to do something about it. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to take our place, to suffer, to suffer and bear the penalty we were due. And through his victory on the cross and his um, triumph over death and his resurrection, he will restore this world to its original intent. And we will live in God's presence as, as if it was a, a never sin, as if uh, nothing had ever happened, but that everything that in Eden was intended to be, we will live in and so much more. If the Lord did deal with this world now, 
to deal with all the sin and tragedy and pain. He, without Christ and his death, he would have to judge us all. He would have to kill us all because our sin and the sin found in the world is what's brought about this great tragedy. And so what God did in his wisdom is to send his son who would take our place and deal with our hearts and transform our lives so that we could live with him forever. And then he'll bring about the restoration of this world. So God has done something. It's just not necessarily the easy way we want it to be done. But he has done something in Jesus Christ. And we're actually giving you the end. We'll start at the beginning. I want you to look at an obscure passage with me in Leviticus chapter 25. And it's called the year of Jubilee passage. And you heard it read this morning. It's called the Sabbath year. And it was the Sabbath year is created by God to remind us that there will be an Eden and there will be a new life in God and a new opportunity to live in his presence free from sin and pain. Now, you know that the, the Bible is built on sevens, the seven days of creation. And then the se- all the festivals are done in sevens. I mean, I could spend the rest of the morning with charts on the wall showing you all this rhythm within the Old Testament of everything being done in sevens. The word seven actually means complete or fulfilled. Okay, it literally in the Hebrew, it means complete or fulfilled. And we know on the Sabbath day of creation that the Lord rested from creation the word rested there needs to be ceasing, ceasing from your task, but it also means to fill and come and take up residence. So on the seventh day, the Lord stopped creating because all that was needed to be done was done. He's not resting because he's tired. He's resting because it's completed. The word seven, again, means complete or fulfilled. Okay, And then in the ancient world, on the last day of creation, on the seventh day, a God fills their temple with their presence and makes himself fully known. God's temple in Genesis 1 is his creation, and he came to fill it with his presence and come and have residence here and to be in sweet fellowship with Adam and Eve. So the number seven is going to have a constant, constant be something that constantly, constantly reverberates throughout Scripture. Okay, When we get to uh, chapter 25 in Leviticus, we know from the Ten Commandments that the Sabbath day was a special day. We are to keep it holy as a day of reminding ourselves we're utterly dependent on God. Okay, We, um, this rest, Sabbath rest, this day set aside for the Lord is to remind ourselves that we're totally inadequate and we're totally dependent on Him and we set aside time to rejoice and to thank Him for all that He's provided for us. The Sabbath was never meant to be a legalistic day but to be a day of being utterly devoted to the Lord. There's a human temptation that I've got to work all the time to make it happen, to meet the needs 
to provide for the family. And so it's a temptation to constantly being at work. And I've seen the toll that this takes on people through their lives. Retail is that way. Everybody, with the exception of a few places like Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby, it's a constant thing. And I see that wear and tear on people's lives of not having a day, time set aside to spend time with the Lord and to worship Him. It was to be a reminder that I'm going to trust Him with my whole week and trust Him for my provisions if I take this day and set aside to worship Him. There is no other ancient culture that ever had a day like that. And so the Ten Commandments are unique in the ancient world that they have this special Sabbath, this Sabbath day of spending time in the Lord's presence. But the Lord, but on, on Leviticus 25 shows us not only is there supposed to be a Sabbath day, there's going to be a Sabbath year. Okay, let me read to you a little bit. Leviticus 25, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there will be a Sabbath of the solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, and for yourselves, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hard workers and sojourners who live with you, and for your cattle, and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yields shall be for food. You know what the Lord is saying here is you take a whole year off. And modern farmers have understood that you've got to rest the land or you ruin it and it loses its fertility. But this year, notice how so you're, you're going to ask yourself, if you're an Israelite, now how do I provide for my family in an agrarian, agriculturally-based society if I'm not farming? Did you notice what the words said? That the fruit of the land will provide for you. In other words, the existing trees, the existing fig trees, the existing crops, the Lord will touch it and will provide it for them during this year of resting in Him and worshiping Him. That's just like what Eden was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be a fight to work to get things to grow and fight insects and fight disease. It's supposed to be a time where you're flowing in the presence of the Lord and things are coming forth from the Garden of Eden and the Lord is providing for you. In other words, making a living was, no, was not a fight. And what the Lord is saying is, if you will take the seventh year off, I will bring rest to the land and I will provide for you and it will be like Eden. Where you and I will dwell in the presence together and I will provide for all your needs. We don't know from history if Israel ever did it. Probably not, because part of what the judgment that came as from uh, the prophets, the Lord brought the judgment of Babylon on Judea, was the fact that they were judged the amount of um, jubilee years they didn't keep. But imagine not having to fight, not having to struggle, enjoying the Lord's presence, and He's providing for you that whole year. It's a sign of liberty. It's a sign of restoration. It's a pointer 
that the way things are aren't going to be the way they all have been, and there's going to be a better way and a better life and a way of living with the Lord. Now, not only do we have seven days a Sabbath rest and a seven year, a Sabbath year, now we're going to have a 50th or seven times seven is 49 plus one year. We're going to have a year of Jubilee. So you have seven Sabbath years and you're going to have another and they're going to multiply to 49. And when you get to that 50th year, there's going to be a year of Jubilee. Okay. More than likely in that time, only one person, each person would have only experienced that one time. That year of Jubilee. In the ancient world, you wouldn't have lived very long past 50. That's 50 years. You would have experienced it maybe one time in your lifetime. But it says, you shall, verse 8, you shall count seven weeks of the seven years, seven times seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. And then you shall sound the trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. It's supposed to be a year of release, a year of freedom. What would happen over these years is that people would get into, folks, Israelites, would get into financial trouble. Maybe their crops failed. Maybe there was a flood. Maybe there was a plague. And they would have to lease their land out. Or they would have to lease land from someone else in order to provide their crops. In other words, they began to be in a debt load, not like similar to credit card debt, but not the same thing. This would be a debt of leasing. You're, you're, you're leasing out your land because you need money to come back in, but you're, you're, you're no longer using it. You're loaning it to other people for them to use it. What it began to be create is a great disparity within the culture, within Israelite culture, because certain people were holding more and more land. And as a result, it becomes more and more oppressive to the culture and the everyday family can't make it. So what the year of Jubilee began to was for was to restore all the land back to its original owners and to cancel that leasey debt so that there would be no tribe of Israel that would be so small that it would cease to exist. There would be no... Uh, 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 monopoly on the land or who controlled all the food. And it would be a reset to where all the tribes of Israel would be back in their original boundaries as it was given to them when Joshua entered the promised land. But then it became also a picture, a pointer, to the way things will be. You shall return to your property. Each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year, this is verse 11, will be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather grapes from the undressed vines. For it is jubilee, it will be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In other words, the field will be providing the food for you in and of itself. Again, another picture of Eden. In verse 13, each year of jubilee you shall return to your property. 
And then skip down to verse 19. The land will yield its fruit and you shall eat your fill and dwell in it securely. You, don't you long today with friends and family who are struggling physically and emotionally with sicknesses and sin and the fight we're fighting in the midst of this COVID crisis? We long for a day where we can be with Jesus. And there won't be any more arthritis. There won't be any more heart problems. There won't be any more uh, sicknesses. There will be no more cancer, no more COVID. There will just, just be you and your family who walk with the Lord and enjoying His presence and rejoicing. And everything would be as it was originally intended to be, just living in the glory and the light of the Lord. This is what the Bible describes as new, new heavens and the new earth. Also in Revelation, it's described as the new Jerusalem. If you want to know more about it, read the end of Isaiah, or read Peter, Second Peter, or read uh, Revelation. But the, these things, these pointers, these years of Jubilee are pointing to something. They're pointing to restoration. They're pointing to kingdom. They're pointing to healing. They're pointing to people who have an encounter with God who would be uh, touched by Him, loved by Him, and forgiven in Him. Israel longed for this. Now flip with me to the um, Old Testament reading for today. It was Isaiah 61. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. It was supposed to be by its keeping the commands and walking in the glory of the Lord, the nations would come flooding to it, looking for salvation. Yet Israel became more and more, began to fail more and more, began to sin more and more, and it lost its vision of being a light to the nations. So as you see in Scripture, it becomes like Abraham and his family were to be a messianic family who would be God would use to draw people to himself. But as Israel continues to fail, especially under the kings, and then begins to be under judgment, you'll notice scripture narrows it down to saying it's not going to be a people, it's going to be a person who's going to fix things, who's going to restore things, who's going to bring renewal, who's going to bring jubilee. In chapter 61 of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's upon the suffering servant that's described in Isaiah 53, who's going to bring salvation, dying in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was judged for our iniquities, it says in Isaiah 53. But this Messiah will come and the Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon him. He's going to be anointed of the Spirit to do what? To bring good news to the poor, to send me to bind up the brokenhearted, to reclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. The year of the Lord's favor is another way of saying the year of Jubilee. This Messiah figure, this man, will come and bring about and restore things the way they were intended to be, where they should be. He's anointed him to do this. And who's he doing it for? The poor. It's not just people who are poor in financially, but it's people who are marginalized within society, have been 
rejected and forgotten by the world. He sent me to bond up the brokenhearted, those who have been hurt. Not just hurt because you forgot to invite me to your party, but hurt because their hearts are broken from sin. Sin done to them and sin they've done. Because this sin brings captivity and bondage, we're going to be brought liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison, these chains are going to be let loose. It's all going to be the year of the Lord's favor during the year of Jubilee, the day when God puts all things to rights, the day of vengeance. So the promise is still there from Leviticus 25. And as, uh, as Israel's returning from exile after the judgment from Babylon, Isaiah is reminding them this promise is still true. But this promise is bound up in a person. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, Jesus has gone through the temptation. He has been baptized. He's gone through the temptation. He's beginning his ministry. He's suffered rejection. He's in the synagogue, and he's doing the lesson reading for the day. Yes, they had a lectionary, and yes, they had lectors. And yes, they would take, you've probably seen in the movies where they take the scrolls, and I forget the the name, I wish Gil was here, but the, you take the scrolls out of the special box there and turn them to the place where you're going to be reading that day. And Jesus would have been the reader for that day. And notice what he reads. Verse 18 of chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover his sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's saying, I'm the one that Isaiah 61 is all about. I'm the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord's on me. That's what the word anointed means. Messiah is the anointed one who's been appointed by God to put all things to rights. He's proclaiming good news to those who are marginalized, who have been rejected by society. He's setting free those who are encaptured and, and chains and bondage to sin. He's coming to restore sight to the blind, spiritual sight, physical sight, emotional sight to those who have been, who've been blinded by their own sin. He's proclaiming. He's coming about. His task is to bring about the year of Jubilee and make it real in our lives. Jesus is the Jubilee fulfiller. He's Leviticus 25. He's Isaiah 61. Now, how does this all get to Mary? Flip over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, the Magnificat that we read today instead of recited today instead of the psalm. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul has a praise and worship song that it must sing. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He is the one who's going to come and deliver us from this bondage of sin and shame. He's looked on me, his humblest servant. And from now on, generations will come be blessed because I'm going to be the mother of our Lord. My humble estate, it's nothing that I did. It's nothing that I earned. It's nothing that I achieved that caused God to use me. But because he has decided to do this thing in and through me, I will be called blessed. 
He who is mighty has done these great things for me, and holy is his name. I get to participate in the salvation of the world. His mercy is tender to me. Let's think about this. It's this 15-year-old girl living in the backwaters of Palestine, one of the poorest areas of the whole world at the time, saying to the Lord, thank you for using me to bring about your Messiah into this world. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Isn't it funny? If, I think if this was written today, we would psychologize the whole thing. <laughs> Why did you pick me? I needed an explanation. You know, uh, uh, how are you going to use me? How hard is this going to be? I don't know if I can do it. You know, my pet peeve with the Lord of the Rings is that all the male characters have these great self-doubting moments, you know, and don't know if they can be your leader or not, you know, and they carry that over into the Narnia movie, too, with Peter. High King Peter, and it's like we all have got to get inward and anxious and and um, uh, introverted and self-loathing before we can take up a leadership position. Okay, and notice the difference. You're doing this thing. It's the strength of your arm. It's not about me. It's about your mercy. It's not about my abilities. It's not about my self-image. It's about your glory. You've shown the strength of your arm in verse 41. You've scattered the proud. I know this has been a difficult election season, and there's a lot to, to comment on. But one thing, believers, and I know many of us wanted a conservative to win, but the thing that we had to reminder, a reminder that God's in control of governments, and our ultimate faith is not in a person. The politician, for our ultimate faith is in Jesus Christ. And he deals with the proud. You gotta keep in mind that Tom and Mary, she never voted. She never entered a ballot. She never got a little chad that came off her little ballot in Florida. <laughs> she never knew what it was like for Dominion uh, computer systems to see if they changed her vote or not. She didn't have any say who was ruling and who wasn't. But she knew that he, God would scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Those who love power, those who love the Lord, the Lord it over others, he would deal with them. He would bring them down. Verse 52, he brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble. She had seen it in her lifetime and she had seen it in the history of Israel. Look at mighty Nebuchadnezzar in this credible kingdom and that he had built all powerful huge buildings huge cities nothing like it in the ancient world and he became so proudful in his conceit he began to act like an animal and he crawled on all fours because he thought he was god and god humbled him and reminded him that if you don't worship the lord you lose your image the image of god in yourself and you become like the animals you were supposed to rule. He brought them down. He brought down Nebuchadnezzar. He brought them down. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, and remember of his mercy, he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. 
Notice this becomes not about Mary, it's about Israel. And it's about God being faithful to Israel. And that God is going to come and bring the year of Jubilee in, in a person, Jesus Christ. And that person, Jesus Christ, is going to be her son. And the Lord's going to fulfill his promises of Jubilee by using her. Not in her adequacy, but in her humble estate. This is why we take a Sunday and set aside to appreciate her. I know there's a lot of controversy between Protestants and Catholics about, you know, Mary and so forth. But I don't want us in the midst of that controversy that's been going on for 500 years to, to miss the opportunity of saying, thank you, Lord, for using a young lady like this. And in her humble estate, you raised her up and you gave her grace and mercy. And you used this, la- this young lady to be an instrument of your grace, to send us someone who would bring to us your salvation, your year of Jubilee. One day all things will be put to rights, and there will be no more crying and no more weeping, and there will be no more sin. And and that will be the ultimate Jubilee. But until then, the Jubilee is now, and it's not yet, as theologians like to say. The Jubilee has started because Jesus has arrived. He is establishing his kingdom. He's bringing healing and restoration. And it will be completed. This this Jubilee, this, this kingdom will be completed at the second coming of Christ. This is something I ran across, and I'll close with this. Uh, yesterday, I was doing some study. I've been taking a class from the Bible Project. And in God's good timing, the, uh, the year of Jubilee, Isaiah 61, was the passage that was being covered in that class for yesterday as I was going through it, trying to finish it. Uh, it's 31 classes, and I'm going to class 31. And he, it just so happened that that was the Old Testament text and God's good timing. And as Jesus announces in Luke 4 that he is fulfilling the Jubilee year, It's like Jesus is intentional because he wants you to see that his ministry is truly the fulfillment of this promise. He's going to directly deal with people and fulfill those promises of Isaiah 61. Let me show you. There's a leper that he heals in chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. There's a paralyzed man that he forgives and releases. That's the exact words of Isaiah 61 quoted in Luke 4. That the, those who are bound will be set free. Those who are in sin will be released. A man with a deformed hand is healed on the Sabbath and he's saved on the seventh day. That's in chapter 6. Chapter 7, who revives a Roman centurion's servant. It brings life out of death. A grieving mother and a, a grieving widow and mother in Cain, he comes and visits and brings restoration to the marginalized. In chapter 7, the blind, the leprous, the lame, the deaf, and the poor all healed. In 7.22, a prostitute is forgiven and released. In chapter 7, demons are exercised or delivered from a tormented man in chapter 11, and a hunchbacked woman is released from her illness. 
step by step, one by one, the kingdom is advancing in the year of Jubilee is happening. And it's not, and it's happened with Jesus' arrival with his kingdom. It's continuing to happen and it will happen in its fullness at his second coming. So we can hope that the Lord is moving now and he's bringing restoration and we pray for healing, but the ultimate healing will be at his second coming. And so we rejoice. There is a year, year of jubilee. There is a place. In the midst of this, this has been the craziest year I've ever experienced, and I know it has been for you too. In some ways, this past week has been one of the most challenging weeks I've faced of this challenging year. But we can know and we can have hope that even in our grief and our sorrow, even when we uh, may, may lose a loved one, we can know there's a year of jubilee. There's a year that the Lord is going to bring release. He's going to bring victory. He's going to conquer the enemy completely and will be restored to live as we are intended to live in the complete presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that we, you would make the year of Jubilee our life. And Lord, help us to see what a beautiful Savior you are. And that, Lord, you've come to set the captives free. Lord, set us free today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.